Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Well, hey everyone, I'm really glad you could join me today. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Jeff Bone, who's the event director for the New Zealand Agricultural Show, um, formerly known as the Canterbury A&P Show. And in this podcast, we talk a lot about the show, but we also talk about marketing events. And he gives us some really interesting insights about that. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Jeff. And, and then when you get people involved, uh, you need to empower them because you can't do everything yourself. Right. And you've, you've, you've got to look at these humans and go, look, they're quite smart people. Let them do it. Let yeah. them do it their way. Yeah. The AMP Association was you know, kicked off in, 156 years ago. Mm-hmm. And so the, the association itself has 2,500 members in New Zealand. And from those memberships, they have a series of committees. So you've got a, a cattle committee, a um, horse committee. You've got a, a livestock other, which includes poultry and mm-hmm. um, llamas and all sorts of animals, pigs. And then you've got um, sheep, dogs and sheep. Mm-hmm. Sheep dog, and then you've got wood chopping, and then you've got enduro cross, and then you've got shearing. These are all functioning committees with dozens of members. The horse committee has four subcommittees with dozens of members, and they—I mean—the horse committee alone organise effectively the largest equestrian event in the South Island, probably the second or third largest in New Zealand. Mm. My job um, as the manager, really, I'm there to enable volunteers because I don't know anything about horses, right? <laughs> and I've never run a horse event in my life. You actually need experts to do that. And if you paid the experts, we'd go bankrupt instantaneously. Just zero chance we would operate. Right. So you've got these 550 people that run the show. They, they All year long, they plan, they organise their sections, they organise their competitions. And the New Zealand Agricultural Show has 3,000 individual competitions. Mm. 7,000 animals turn up. This episode is being released just a couple of days before the New Zealand Agricultural Show, at which there will be about 100,000 people attending over three days. And there's literally hundreds and hundreds of volunteers behind the scenes making it happen. So it's a really fascinating insight to hear from Jeff directly. If you enjoyed this episode, and it's the first Seeds podcast that you've listened to, then you might want to check out some of the dozens and dozens of other interviews in the back catalogue. The one other thing I want to say before we get into the show is that Jeff contacted me after we recorded this, And on the episode, you'll hear that we talk briefly about his mild dyslexia and what that had meant for him growing up. And he came back in, actually, after the interview was recorded, and we'd recorded another 20 minutes about dyslexia itself. And so I'm going to release that in a couple days as a standalone episode, because I thought the content was really, really helpful. So keep an eye out for that as well. Now let's get into the interview with Jeff. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome Jeff Bone, who's the event director of the New Zealand Agricultural Show and the owner of Beck and Call. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Stephen. On this show, we talk about what people are doing today, but in order to do that, uh, and we're going to talk a lot, I think, about the AMP show, (laughs) which is a great event coming up quite soon, Um, but in order to set the scene or the context, it's helpful to go back in people's history. Yes. and kind of work out, trace a little bit of their background. So if you could just start by telling us a bit about where you're from. Well, I'm from Avonside. So I grew up in Avonside. Um, both my parents were teachers and my um, my father sort of specialised in special education, helping kids, and, and my mother ended up working in the mayor's office. She worked for Vicky Buck and Gary Moore and Bob Parker. So 
I guess Christchurch is where I'm from. Right. Um, I, you know, finished high school and went to university in Otago, and then I took off and lived overseas for over a decade, and I, I spent a, you know, five years over in, in Australia as an advertising um, consultant, and then I moved to London where I spent another five or six years uh, in the event business. Mm. So we worked across Europe and North America, uh, creating events, running events, mostly business events, so conferences and trade shows. And, um, you know, once I'd done my time, I, I came back to Christchurch. Right. It was always home, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was always home, yeah. So just um, dialing back right to that childhood that you mentioned. Yes. Um, so was your mother working in the mayor's office and things when you were a child, or was that a bit Teenager. Better? Yeah. Yeah, no, as a teenager. So um, I was, um, in fact, I was elected onto the Christchurch City Council Youth, Youth Council as a when I was at high school. And so she was, mum was there during that time. That was Vicky Buck's uh, reign as the mayor. And um, it was an interesting, it's always been interesting for me because you get that kind of inside um, wink and a nod about what's really going on behind the scenes and always makes you smile a little bit. Right. Certainly yeah. given me an insight. Now, I spend a lot of time with councillors now um, because we have such a... The Canterbury MP Association has joined at the hip with the um, Christchurch City Council. You know, we, we have this huge event, but we also manage this huge piece of land that's owned by the council. And um, we work alongside them and their leasing and their parks division, their sport and rec as they develop in the point of why. Um, and so, um, you know, I've got that insight. It's been interesting. Yeah, so you've had that background from yeah. quite an early age. Yeah. Yes. And, and what else was your your childhood like I guess what type of things did you enjoy um well I guess I'm um, archetypal sort of Kiwi kid I, I, I was privileged to grow up with two amazing parents mm. um you know I went to public schools and they were great schools um my dad and mum took me skiing as a kid and which is something I you know love they took me on camping holidays yeah um so the outdoors was a big part of it yeah absolutely my yeah. father had always been involved with the outdoors in fact i, th I think he was fundamental him and, and somebody else set up the uh, peninsula and plains orienteering club here in canterbury which is i think the only orienteering club in canterbury so it's right. that sort of example of he loved the outdoors yeah um and my sister was the same she was great she loved to go skiing and hanging out and so she's always been very active and um as a family we've had a lot of fun yeah well it's a great it's a great place to be isn't it to be able to do those yeah. things so and yeah. i think that's what drew me back right you know, you've lived in australia and the big lights of london where i had a great job and we're doing great things but um christchurch gives you an opportunity to i guess raise a family for a start in a relaxed and enjoyable place but it's easier to live and it's easy to make choices about you know exercising and looking after yourself and having fun and making a choice one day to go skiing you know if you want to make a choice to go skiing in London, you spend three weeks planning it. Right. Here you wake <laughs> up in the morning and you make that determination. And you, you get, get in the car and you drive. And yeah. It's not far, is it? Yeah. yeah. So, I, yeah, I enjoy that. Yeah. And and you mentioned that you went overseas. Um, what was it that took you away? I guess, was it a OE experience that was meant to be one year that became longer? Or, or did you intend to stay away for as long as you did? Uh, no, no, I was... I, I don't know. I've, I had lots of you know. An if I see an opportunity in life, I take it. Mm. And a friend of mine, good friend of mine, was living in Perth, and um, I just got on a plane and took off. Right. <laughs> and, um, it was just yeah. I went over there for a summer in between university papers and came back and decided to, I was, was pretty convinced I'd go back after that, which I did. Mm. You know, when I was there again, it was you know my first job there was a trainee manager for budget rental cars, which is you know pretty much the same as a trainee manager at McDonald's. It's a good job to have. You learn a lot, but it mm. wasn't what I, my dream job right um and i ended up one night um drinking um at a bar and um 
I was just chatting to some random dude and he was telling me about his job as a, an advertising consultant and one thing led to another within three weeks I was working for his company and then I think about eight weeks after that Fairfax bought the company and suddenly I was an advertising consultant with Fairfax and having a great time. Right. <laughs> yeah. So the doors opened. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've, always, I've always enjoyed just opening doors and um, doing things and taking risks. Um, I'm, I'm not afraid of risk. Yeah. What's your th- thought process when you're faced with a risk or, a, or an open door? Like, how do you go about making that decision to walk through it? Um, I think, like, when I purchased my first company, it was just all about understanding the downside. So what happens if this all goes um, to the proverbial? Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can manage the downside, then, um, and I'm quite comfortable with losing a whole lot of money and just ending up going back and getting a job, then I'll do it. Right. Um, but when you're younger, of course, it doesn't matter. I didn't have anything to lose. <laughs> I had a student loan that I was trying to pay off, and um, so what's the difference? Just um, you know, you're either going to wake up at the age of 29 and not have a job, or be at 27 with a job you don't like. Right. So I just went for it. And it worked. Yeah. Yeah. So that I guess that that attitude um, has seen you through a number of doors that were opening, and you've taken them. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know I don't. Um, like school for me wasn't a walk in the park. I, I, I got a degree and I got all those things, but I'm not. It wasn't a natural academic that would sit there and um, hammer out a book in five minutes. Reading for me, I was always that kid that was the last kid in the class to go from you know pencil to pen, mm. as they used to do back in the day. Um, and I, I had all the you know the reading recovery as a six year old, or seven year old, and eight year old, and my left side of my brain didn't communicate with the right side, or the, whatever that thing was that happens when you're that age. And my son's going through it now; mm-hmm. he's very similar to myself. And um, I think when you grow up like that and you you still manage to get succeed in class, you've got to try that much harder to get to that same result. Mm-hmm. And then in doing that, you find shorter ways and quicker and easier ways to do things. And so when you're in the workforce. Um, you, you, you're not waiting for someone to tell you what to do. You're always constantly trying to figure out the next thing for yourself. Right. And when I f- found myself in London creating events, um, it, the whole process to me felt quite natural in that we had nothing. We'd start with nothing except mm. um, an idea and we would just start ringing people. And if we wanted to create a business event, for example, um, I created a, an asset management conference which was following a, a, a modern trend where you would outsource the back office of an asset management company. But of course, you know, I don't know anything about asset management. Right. It's zero. <laughs> uh, and, but it made sense to me. What, what, what I learned very quickly was that there were only about 10 companies in the world that you could outsource your back office to because you're talking about complex electronic trades and so you've got all the governance, all the Basel regulations that sit around it and, and therefore these 10 companies, whether it be the Bank of New York, Mellon, ING, have the specialist capacity to take on your smaller, perhaps, asset management company and do that. Um, and so I didn't really know what I was doing, but I just I rang up the um, managing director of the Bank of New York and um, had a conversation with him and told him that the guy mm-hmm. up the road said that it couldn't be done. And he said, no, no, it can be done. <laughs> and he And so he called me into his office and I found myself just sitting on you know the top floor of number one Canary Wharf which is just a ridiculously yeah. expensive plush office in London and um, we went through a process during that meeting and um, 
and he said to me, well, what do you want me to do? And I said, well, I don't know anything about asset management really, so you'll have to write the program for me. You'll sponsor it. But if, you know, if I can get myself into your office, I can get myself into everyone else's office, so I'll go and sure. get all the people there. And he, 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 he went for it. He loved it. And so then we just created this conference out of nothing, and in the end there was only um, 15 people in the room. But that, you know, these guys were talking about billion-dollar deals, which were way above my right. pay grade. Um, but I enjoyed that process of meeting, bringing those people together and getting them together. So Yeah, so creating something new that hadn't existed before. Yep. And then, um, and then going and doing something different because I'm not right. really big on doing the same thing over and over and over. Okay. So you take your skills that you learned from this one and then go and do a, a yep. different thing. Yeah. I want to highlight one thing that you mentioned as well because I thought it was really helpful, you know, through your high school years and studying that you'd faced hardship in, um, in that academic side of things. Yep. And therefore, you approached your work in a way that meant you were always looking for better ways to do things. Because I think sometimes when you're facing the hardship as you're going through it, there's a lot of, um, you know, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. And and sometimes you forget that you're actually learning lessons that, that will then help later on, as opposed to somebody who just sort of naturally, you know, was able to read Lord of the Rings at age five and, you know, never had that. And yeah. maybe just then assumed that everything would be handed handed to you. And that's not the case. No, it's not. And like, I, I love reading. I read um, all the time. But what I think, like, so I don't, I was never diagnosed with anything, but it was probably dyslexia, if anything, but, and probably mild. Um, and so you understand everything. You can sit in class, comprehend complicated things. Mm. Um, um, but often applying it in an exam, you just, for some reason, rubbish at exams. Um, not that you couldn't pass exams. Um, but you could understand the entire th- curriculum and come out with a B um, mm. and be like, well, why don't you get an A? I understand it all. But then it's just something about translation into writing. And of course, writing isn't necessarily um, a natural thing for a human anyway. We've, we created writing a few hundred years ago and, and we've made it a huge part of our lives. Mm. Um, but the, you know, like a podcast is a good example of us just going back to what we've always done, talked. Mm. Telling stories. And we've just found technologies to enable it. And... Um, I think you'll find it'll go more and more this way because mm. you've got this these software, artificial intelligence being developed like Dragon, which allows somebody to be driving home and write. They just speak all of their emails and it will literally turn them into emails and send them for you. Mm. So you don't need to write. Mm. Um, and I'm not suggesting it's, that's going to go away, but I think the mix will change considerably as they, you know, especially young people. My son does a lot of stories on um, Google Docs where he talks to stories. Okay. So he's nine now, and um, he has this, this highly creative kid. And um, again, writing's not his thing. He doesn't like it. It's mm. just not natural at it. But you put him on, on front of a microphone and get him to tell a story mm. using Google Docs, and he'll smash out these amazing stories. Mm. And, and, and the content's what's important because the world in the future doesn't need people that can spell, it needs ideas. Mm. And as you know, if you're an accountant or a lawyer, a lot of that work will become. Um, done by the machine mm-hmm. whereas traditionally that was never possible mm. and the the lawyers and the accountants for example that are going to thrive are the ones with the creative ideas that can mm. really make things work mm. yeah I think you're right I think technology is going to disrupt that's the key word isn't it yeah. disrupt so many industries and ways of doing things but it's not going to end them it's going to be a we're going to work with the technology yeah. so it's going to be humans their, their brains and how they can um, partner with the technology and the most those people that can think of the the best way to utilize it um, are going to be the ones that succeed 
rather than anyone who just complains about it taking their job or you've actually got to think about how you can do your job better by help by using it yeah well that's i've said this before on this podcast that's because i'm a lawyer so that's kind of my hope is that the things that i don't enjoy doing the ad many you yeah. know paper moving here to there and filling in names and things that I won't have to do that because it will be outsourced or it will be done more efficiently. And then I can actually spend time with the client understanding their needs and, you know, using the background and previous experience to help them achieve whatever it is that they're wanting to do. So it's that yeah. attitude, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Events are a little bit different because I kind of look at events and say, how can we automate it this? And right. they're so organic that yeah. it's, it becomes really tricky. Yeah. Um, so what makes a good event? Um, well, the experience of the, I guess, the people involved. Mm -hmm. Like, do, uh, you know, it's a visual experience. Is it a sensory experience? Does it make them happy? Are they able to share something with someone they love or one of their children or their, you know, significant other? Um, a lot of, you know, the Canterbury MP show is, uh, which of course we've rebranded this year as a New Zealand agricultural show, is, is actually a, a ginormous series of multiple events. Right, and you know, there's 550 volunteers that come to the show. Many of them have been coming for decades, mm. and I don't. I never go on recruitment drives for volunteers. They're just there. Right. So it's an extraordinary. They, and they're, why are they there? I mean, they're there because they want to enjoy themselves, and they enjoy the work. They enjoy the participation. Mm -hmm. They enjoy that personal reward of of giving. Um, and so, what makes a good event? Just, I guess it depends on what what it's about. Mm. You got your business events, which really require. And having people standing in front of a stage engaging your brain. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can have a whole lot of CEOs, and I've created conferences where CEO after CEO after CEO have spoken, um, and it's just as, it's just boring. I've seen you to sleep. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you can get a somebody in who can engage the brain mm -hmm. and make you think about the implications to to whatever it is you're doing in your mm -hmm. life, and and then the events all worthwhile. Yeah, I actually find it interesting. I, I'm noticing that. Um, events that I go to where somebody is speaking for 45 minutes, it's just too long. Yeah. So it, you know, they're, they're, it's almost like they're given so much time that they just have to fill it in. Whereas actually, if you said, if you say to them, look, you've got eight minutes to tell us the essence of what it is that you think is important, then all of a sudden you're able to crystallize down the key points. And so I was helping out with an event earlier this year at Te Papa, and that's what we did is we had 40-minute hour-long slots, but we had four or five speakers, and so they each were given about eight minutes. And, and it was so much better because it was really like, here's what I really think. Oh, I've run out of time. Next person. Yeah, and I'm glad it's gone that way mm -hmm. because when I was doing conferences in Europe, um, we didn't do it that way. Right. Um, and this is only going back, uh, you know, just over a decade. But we would effectively have this, the normal structure of a conference program with the opening speaker and the opening delegates and then the best speaker and then you break off into streams. And yeah. part of your job was just to constantly be ringing humans trying to find the best speakers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and often you got people that just wanted to um, get a new job. So they might be the managing director of Business X, but right. the reason they're speaking is because they want to put themselves out there because they're sick of being the managing director of Business X. I see. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the, we're doing a seminars, a series of seminars at the New Zealand Agricultural Show this year, which is focused on the farmer and you know the, what is the future of the land and um, how you use innovation on the land mm. to um, be more efficient, more sustainable, and you know get better produce out of your um, or better use out of your land. Mm. 
and we've done the same thing. We've gone with you know ten minute slots, and then mm-hmm. a, and then all three speakers that do you know ten minutes each come together and yeah. discuss what they've what the challenges are and, and how they go forward. And it just seems the smartest way. Yeah. Well, I'd love to dive into the New Zealand AMP show. Yeah. Um, but before we do that, <laughs> is there anything else from your time in Europe that you, um, yeah, I guess that you learned about creating events? Because lots of people listening. Um, some of them will be creating events or, you know, be interested in that, you know, because you've got a lot of experience in that area. I just want to pull out as much wisdom as I can from you. Um, well, we, I worked with a, quite a special human over there um, and he taught me um, an enormous amount about negotiation and, okay. you know, but creating a, a conversation, how you structure a conversation to, I guess, achieve the outcome that you want. It's really important when you're running an event that you understand why it is you're inviting people to be involved in it mm-hmm. and then being able to structure your conversation so you communicate it properly and then um, and sell it because mm-hmm. you you want to get that person who's really busy, who is really interesting, to be involved in it. And it doesn't matter whether it's business or it's a cultural or a, a, you know, a trade event. Yeah. And you need to be having you know sometimes 20 of those conversations a day for a couple of months. And you just really need to be on it all the time. Mm. But, and then when you get people involved, uh, you need to empower them because you can't do everything yourself. Right. And you've, you've, you've just got to look at these humans and go, look, they're quite smart people. Let them do it. Yeah. Let them do it their way. Yeah. So you've got to let go. You're in charge of this and yeah. just come to me if there's an issue or a problem or whatever. And yeah. otherwise, go for it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but don't, And also, don't think about events as event managers and I often have people say to me look I'm thinking about doing event management as a, as a course at university when I right. okay, well I don't employ event managers so I, you know, I employ a marketing expert I employ high level administrators um, I employ sales people um, or logistics people but I, I, I'm not looking for an event person mm. um, and, and then we break our thing down and you can take any talented marketing person or sales person and put them into the role of an event company and they'll perform really well um, selling an event is no different to selling sponsorship in a, a, a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess from London or from, from Europe, uh, I, I learned a little bit of the hustle. We spent a lot of time on the telephone right. and then going out and drumming up sponsorship money yeah. Yeah. and getting th- just making stuff happen. But we also did a lot of, we also let a lot of things fail. So we might attempt 12 events in a year um, and not expect to pull off more than six. I see. But we had a process that allowed us to fail and we would get to a certain point and we would basically look at the, Russell was, uh, Russell Wilcox was my boss and um, he would go, right, we're at failure point yet and we would have some criteria that would set us up and then mm. he would enable us to go, right, fail it, let's go to the next one. And we just see. keep going and yeah. never give up. Wow. So that that's something I'm really curious about because you mentioned lots of phone calls and yes. talking with people. So that inevitably involves rejection as well, right? Like, no, yeah. I'm not interested. How did you, um, is that just a part of your personality that you pick yourself up and keep moving on? Or is it some a skill that you learn to deal with because you're never going to get everybody agreeing with you and wanting to do what you're suggesting? Uh, I think it's both. I think you have to naturally be able to handle it. Yeah. Um, and not be worried about the fact that you're getting rejected. Right. Um, you know, when I was in Perth, I was doing six appointments a day as a salesperson and um, for years on end. 
right. and you're constantly in there. And um, a massive diversity of businesses, and people are saying no to you all the time. Mm. And you, you've got to buy it. You get coping mechanisms. So, you know, classic coping mechanism for me is you, you have to find a way to um, take the conversation from being awkward to happy. Right. Because you want to be able to talk to this person again. So, um, you know, I have simple ways of doing it. And, you know, one of them is just to look the person in the eye and say, look, I'm, ha- you know, look, my job is to take a, a no as gracefully as a yes as, as long as I've had an opportunity to really talk with you about why it is you're saying no. Sure. And it just, you know, it removes the conflict. The awkwardness of yeah. that. Oh, he's still yeah. here. Because <laughs> you, you have to give people permission to say no. Because mm. you want to go back to them in six months and have another conversation about something else. Mm. Mm. And, and you want them to know that um, when you ring, it's not going to be, oh, this guy's going to keep ringing me forever. Right. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and it's very different in New Zealand to London. It's very okay. Different. Yeah. What What have you noticed? Uh, well, look, in London, we were doing sometimes if we were on a series of trying to get something launched, we were making sixty phone calls a day. Wow. Um, every day for three or four weeks, and every lunchtime, we were we were sitting around a table with pizza, um, having recorded our conversations and playing them back with the team and analysing, you know the structure of the discussion and how we'd got there. I mean, we were ringing up CEOs of banks. So you, you, you have to have a structure and where you're going with it and, and how you're going to communicate and what you're trying to get out of them. Uh-huh. And so we had a very clear structure about the kinds of questions and you know we were looking for problems that they were facing so that we could understand what solutions we could put in there. Right. We were doing linear line of questioning around what are the implications to solving those problems and what are the implications to them not solving their own problems mm-hmm. and making sure that in a space of 10 minutes that CEO had thought long and hard about the implication to his business if he doesn't solve the problem that you're suggesting you can solve. I see. And whether that means they're not going to generate enough revenue, not going to attract enough staff, whatever it is. And So there's some hook there that they're really interested. Yeah. You know, a bit like fishing, right? <laughs> that, uh, that there's something that, they, that they're that yeah. latching onto. But you've got to also have the confidence that you're going to deliver for them. Mm-hmm. And so you're applying the same techniques to the rest of the event. So whether it be attracting the right speakers, attracting the right delegates, mm-hmm. and um, and you, and you got to you got to deliver. Mm-hmm. You can't not deliver because if you get a you know a CEO interested and they're involved and everything's working, and it works, you can ring them back anytime. Right. And so you you can't ring them back if you if you screw it up. <laughs> yeah, it's a one off. <laughs> you one off opportunity, and um, so you've you've got to make it work. And that's a bit like when I came back to Christchurch and I got a job. After a while, I set up a sales training company just to meet people, if I'm honest, because I didn't have a huge contact base in Christchurch. And yeah. I ended up being employed by Andrew Allen at um, Telecom. I don't know if you've ever met Andrew, but he's you know he's a pretty special human here in Christchurch. And uh, he's CEO of CCL now. Um, and you know, I remember sitting in my little office mm. um, on my own, looking around going, well, do you know what? I, I cannot screw this up because Christchurch is too small. Right. Um, there's no other opportunities that will come this good, this big. Um so just pick up the phone and start making it work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the cultural difference or the, you know, London versus New Zealand. What what was that? Can you easily explain? Yeah. So <laughs> the, in, the um, attitudes of people or, or well, what? It's, it's, it's more of a, you got to look at the market. So mm. I sat down, I said to Andrew Allen, actually, um, when I started at Telecom, look, I need to meet the guy in Telecom that has the most contacts. And so he walked me down to the second floor, put me in front of Greg Urquhart, who's... Um, you know, great guy, Greg. And I basically said to Greg, Greg, I need to know who all the decision makers are in the South Island for IT. And Greg gave me a list of 120 people. Right. And I looked at the list and I said, 
well, this is not very exhaustive. I mean, I can do 120 phone calls in three days. Right. Whereas in London, you know, you can you can have a list of 10,000 people. I see. So you, so you really... you're making 60 phone calls a day, aren't yeah, you, yeah. in London, yeah. and you're not running out. No, and, yeah. and everyone in London is as busy as everybody else. So mm-hmm. you know you've got your 10 minutes with them if you're lucky. And um, whereas here, I decided to cultivate much longer-term relationships. Okay. Applied the same conversation structures, but a lot less intensity, but more around delivery as well. Mm. So you can't... You know, you've got to be transparent with people. You, you definitely can't get away with um, lying or cheating. Right. It's too small. Yeah. And, you know, people, people have long memories. Right? Yeah. yeah. So if, yeah. You, you know, if something's going wrong, you've got to ring up that human and go, this is not working. Right. Before they ring you. Yeah. And, and then they'll let you back in next time. Yeah. Otherwise. Be proactive. Otherwise it won't happen. Yeah. So that long-term perspective on the relationships how does it outwork? Like in London, you would have called 60 people a day. Yep. You're sitting around having pizza. You're analyzing phone calls and you're moving on to the next list. Um, whereas here, what what shape did that take for you? Like was it less phone calls or longer meetings? or uh, Definitely probably less phone calls, but still a lot. Mm. So still you're still looking at 20 a day. And um, I, I, what I found myself was I had to learn a whole new industry. Um, I had to learn what IT was. Uh, I didn't know anything. I still don't know that much about IT, but I mm. sold IT right. for five years. And and I was good at it, um, but probably because I didn't talk about IT so much and talk more about their business. Right. So I spent a lot of time trying to educate myself, but getting my clients to educate me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interesting thing if you kind of admit to clients that you don't know what you're talking about, they're quite happy to help you. Right. Because <laughs> it's their passion and they're teaching yeah. somebody else. So, yeah. um, it sounds like the, the thing that I'm hearing is that you're, looking out what are the needs of the person that I'm talking to, mm. trying to understand the background and what it is that they're actually looking for in their business and well, then offering them a solution. Yeah. Well, if you want to engage the brain of a human, mm. you've got to be able to help them solve their problems. Yeah. So if, if you're talking to somebody on the other end of the phone and they, are, they have structured a conversation around solving problems in your life, mm. um, that's a value to you. Mm-hmm. But if I ring you and, and want to talk to you about the rugby... Hey, that was a great week game on the weekend. Did you enjoy it? Mm. They, I mean, they're already gone. There's a lot of things going on in their lives, yep. and they don't need to talk to the rugby about a guy that well, they're not really that good of friends with. Yeah. Yeah. But if that person that you're building a relationship with um, is interested in sharing with you their business and you can help them and then come up with thoughts and come back to them, then there's value in the relationship and mm-hmm. you've earned the right to go and see them. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. I find it fascinating, you know, the the human dynamics as well, because there's so, so many different personalities as well. And you yes. must know, like you must immediately, as soon as you, you've met so many people, you must sort of get a sense from people quite quickly, do you, about the nature of them? Or Yeah, I do. Um, however, here's a, this is an interesting fact. So in Perth, we, you know, there was about 20 people that were, you know, we were selling advertising, so we called ourselves. We were advertising consultants. We designed the adverts. Uh, we we tried to sell them into different parts of the Fairfax business and develop programs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was pretty hardcore. If you didn't cut it, you were gone. In three months, you were out the door. And every three months, they brought in eight new fish, right? And they would sit down at their desks. Right. And all of the 20 people that had been there for like four or five years would take bets on who okay. was going to be the first one to go. Yeah, right. And who was, who was the most likely to stay. Uh, and and it was really difficult to pick the ones that were going to succeed. Huh. And the most successful, um, his name escapes me, but he was a cricket player from professional cricket player from Lancashire, huh. um, and he just he nailed it. 
And I remember after a year saying to him, what is it do you think that you're so good at this? Yeah. And he just kind of, in a very um, self-depreciating way, said, oh, I don't know. I just, you know, all I've ever done in my life is play cricket and all we ever did is practice. So all I do is practice. Right. Um, and so, I don't know, his way of doing things was just to sit at home and practice what he was doing. Right. Hugely successful. Though. So he had the pitch and the yeah. the, the way, the opening and the identifying yeah. the needs and all that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, thank you for that. That's real. We went down a rabbit hole there of <laughs> event planning and marketing and um, cultural differences and, and things. Um, I'd love to turn now to talk about the New Zealand AMP show. Yes. Um, can you just give us a little bit of context? Because we've got people listening from all over the world, um, just in terms of the history of, of the event. Um, and also, what is an A&P show? Some people listening won't, won't know what we're talking about. Yeah, so it's, I mean, for anybody overseas, it's the New Zealand version of, um, you know, the Cornwall show mm-hmm. or um, the Toronto Stampede, is it Colorado Stampede, or the Toronto Stampede, which is on a you know, um, much bigger scale than us, or the Sydney Royal show. Um, basically, an A&P if the AMP Association was, you know, kicked off in one hundred and fifty-six years ago, mm-hmm. and so the the association itself has two and a half thousand members in New Zealand, paid-up members. They pay a subscription every year, and from those memberships, they have a series of committees. So you've got a, a cattle committee, a um, horse committee, you've got a, a livestock other, which includes poultry and mm-hmm. um, llamas and all sorts of animals, pigs, and then you've got um, sheep, dogs, and sheep. Mm-hmm. Sheepdog, and then you've got wood chopping, and then you've got enduro cross, and then you've got shearing. These are all functioning committees with dozens of members. The horse committee has four subcommittees with dozens of members, and they—I mean—the horse committee alone organise effectively the largest equestrian event in the South Island, probably the second or third largest in New Zealand. Mm. My job um, as the manager, really, I'm there to enable volunteers because I don't know anything about horses, right? <laughs> and I've never run a horse event in my life, and. And I don't know anything about the the height of the jumps, where to put them, how to space them out, you know, how to run a ring plan, how to uh, stable horses. You actually need experts to do that. And mm. if you paid the experts, we'd go bankrupt instantaneously, which is zero chance we would operate. Right. So you've got these 550 people that run the show. They they All year long, they plan, they organise their sections, they organise their competitions, and the New Zealand Agricultural Show has 3,000 individual competitions. Mm. 7,000 animals turn up. You know, some of those animals will go in multiple competitions. But my job is to, to go, right, what competitions do you need to run? And then we've developed a very complicated piece of software that helps us run it. So all the data goes into the software. We push, we push buttons at the end. It produces catalogs, uh, prize money. You know, we're distributing hundreds of thousands of dollars of this you know, prize money throughout, throughout the show. So the structure of the association is members, committees, they all go into a general committee, which has been around for, you know, 150 years, this committee. And and on it, you've got partners from law firms, you've got owners of million-dollar farms, you've got owners of small-lot farms, um, you've Mm. got livestock agents. So it's a real mixture. There's 20 people elected onto that. Okay. And um, and they, of course, appoint a board. And the board chairman of that board is Stuart Mitchell, who's on the NZRU board, and 
has got a lot of history here in Canterbury with um, businesses. Mm-hmm. We've got Mark Clarkson, who's a former managing director of Ansco, um, Melissa Davies, who's a marketing expert and an associate director at Liberton Port Company. We've got uh, Richard Lemon and Ian Stevenson, who have been involved with the association as members and mm-hmm. price presidents for decades, and Nick Walls, who's a, a partner at Leach and Partners as a chartered accountant. So you've got this extremely um, talented group of people mm. who um, are board members, not getting paid a, a huge board salary. It's sure. very modest, very modest indeed. And then my company sits in the middle of all of those groups, and we have to do the strategic planning, the um, you know the accounts, the financials, organise the event. And so the event is just part of a, a much bigger process. So you've got a huge marketing program that. Uh, we have we put in place and we've got all sorts of people involved in that mm. now Christchurch NZ which is you know Christchurch City Council's marketing arm mm. they're heavily involved in what we're doing mm. we engage with them through New Zealand Cup and Show Week we develop plans to align with their plans we align we develop plans to develop all their different sections with different other organisations mm-hmm. so that's just marketing and then sales you've got 550 trade exhibitors couple hundred sponsors um, there's a massive machine that sits in behind mm. laying that site out I mean just the, I mean, you're talking about a greenfield site where we put the power on the ground and we mark out the sites and we and we put Wi-Fi in and yep. we kind of build a small city. We, we we have huge line power lines that come in from Orion into that park and we only really use them three days of the year. Right. But they can power a small city. Right. And and so there's all the health and safety that you have to layer across the top of that, mm-hmm. um, which in itself is a massive job. Yeah. A huge responsibility. And then, um. You've got to organise and run the show, right? And so for for me, I'm a little bit like a conductor in an orchestra, but I'm also I also play an instrument. I see. And, some, <laughs> and I've kind of had to play every instrument. Yeah. Probably the one instrument that I haven't played the most would be the show secretary's role, which Melanie um, Fenton does, and she does an extraordinary job in there. Um, and I don't necessarily know exactly what she does all the time, mm. but it works. And yeah. That's one of the things that makes her role quite challenging. I mean, you you can't write a job description for all of it and you can't just find someone that's done it before right yeah yeah well i was going to ask you how you viewed your role you know like if it was a juggling or if it was a referee or if it was whatever but but it sounds like it's the orchestra sort of picture that there's all these different instruments and you're kind of do 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 you know okay your turn now you now you yeah Yeah. and and some of them are getting paid and a lot of them aren't so it's easy to tell a person who's getting paid can you please go and do that? Mm-hmm. But if you're working with a volunteer, you've got to respect the fact that they've been turning up for 20, some of them 30 or 40 years before you even got there. Right. So you've really got to understand what they do, how they do it, how you can support them. And if you need them to do, do it differently, mm. you've really got to have thought about why you're asking them to do that and take them on the journey with you. So there's, I guess, a bit of politics involved in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it goes back to you have to be transparent with these humans mm-hmm. um, because they'll know. Mm. Oh, no, instantaneously if you're lying to them. Right. And, and you know... Which sometimes- comes back to those conversations you were saying, you know, being honest with the people you're talking to, that giving yeah. them the chance to say no. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And this... I mean, we have to... We're, we are... Like, this is a 156-year-old organization that is evolving very rapidly at the moment. Right. Because if we don't, we'll go bankrupt. The show is so expensive to run. Right. I mean... There's constantly new costs being layered on the operations of it. It's costing us over two, two and a half million dollars a year to put it on, mm. to run you know, for everything. And you've got to generate, you know, that money out of ticket sales <laughs> yeah, and sponsorship. <laughs> and, 
a lot of the tickets to people that come are free, so so it's it's a tricky number. You can't mm. just and you can't just keep putting the ticket price up because with it defeats the purpose of having a community event if it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's quite an amazing thing. And so, how do you guide through a change like the name Canterbury AMP Show to New Zealand AMP Show? That that you know, taking people on a journey. Um, well, there's a lot of people to go on that journey. So the actual name is the New Zealand Agricultural Show, and, and it's okay. it's the New Zealand Agricultural Show, and not the New Zealand AMP Show because there are other AMP shows in New Zealand, right. and we don't want to claim that we own the New Zealand title of AMP shows. Okay. I mean, we are the largest by quite some margin, right? And we are we always have been one of the leaders in that field, but we purposely called it the New Zealand Agricultural Show to ensure that we weren't disempowering other AMP associations in mm. New Zealand. Mm. Um, the journey involved um, our members. So we've got 2,500 members, and through those committees, all of those committees, getting their permission. Right. But in the end, the general committee led it. So I, in fact, John, um, who you had on the show, um, John Hammond, mm-hmm. s- stood with me. Um, I brought John into a meeting with the um, general committee because I didn't want to be the tail that wagged the dog, the mm-hmm. guy that constantly told them, you should do this, you should do this. I said, look, sure. you know, you're not going to get anything but honesty out of John. yeah. And so they asked John a lot of questions and he was very blunt with them about what they were doing and why we were doing it and why it was a good idea. Yeah. And then I walked out of the room. Uh, I was gone for an hour. They sat there and debated. I mean, they, they are the governors of an organisation that's 150 years old. Mm. Um, and then they came out and said, uh, we want to do it. Mm-hmm. And so we did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but again, the, the key thing that's coming through for me is that it's empowering people to be able to say no you know not trying to force things through yeah. you know it's that journey taking people with you because as you go through the journey there, there are points where things might not work or you know if you know if your ticket sales are down 10 percent because a whole lot of people don't know what the new zealand agricultural show is you need all the other people to understand be like oh well, we were part of the decision to make that we understand that it might take 12 to 18 months for people to learn that we've moved from that name to that name but we're yeah. the same show yeah sure but it is important that national brand is very important for canterbury and the south island because we the whole evolution behind the show is to en- engage you know new zealand trade and enterprise and make sure we've got buyers coming into it mm-hmm. i mean the general manager of christchurch nz um lauren hefe was just the other day emailed me about bringing in um tourism agents to ensure we can try and get some visitors from China to come to the show. And do you know what? If you got on a plane from China, came to Christchurch and went to the AMP show, it'd be an experience like you're not going to get anywhere else. So it is actually quite an amazing thing to sell. Yeah. And then from the business perspective, we're really ramping up the innovation and rural side of our of the show. We've built a huge marquee this year with financial support from the Ministry of Business and Innovation. Mm-hmm. And all of these different cogs that sit behind the wheels that, that mean we don't have to get money off the Christchurch City Council, but we can start taking from a national pool. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all part of that wider strategy. Mm-hmm. And for me, the value and the future for Christchurch and for Canterbury um, is, you know, you've got New Zealand Cup and Show Week, but the real kicker is that convention centre that's being built. Mm-hmm. And the Lincoln Hub, which is now called Blink, you know, your innovation agri-hub. If you can bring those three things together, the show... Um, a convention center in Lincoln Hub and use it for a large scale conferences, whether it be a, a world conference on genetics um, or any form of rural innovation. Mm. You can bring buyers from all over the world to Christchurch, give them an experience they're not going to get at any conference on the planet, mm-hmm. bring them to the show, take them out to Lincoln, take them on a farm tour, mm-hmm. um, and really 
utilize the asset that we've spent. I mean, what is it? It's a half billion dollar building. Mm. We need to fill it with the right people. Mm. And so that's the future of our show. And that's what we want to do is to be a part of that process. Mm. So leveraging in and, and seeing the synergies yeah. with other things that are going on. And bringing urban and rural communities together is, mm. is at the heart of it. Um, but yeah, because mm. that's, that's got to be, just to pick up on that point, that's got to be a big ethos or part of the show, isn't it? That, that you're yeah. getting kids who don't know where milk comes from, you know, like that, that they can come and see all the different, cause my kids love it. You know, all the different varieties of chickens. It's, it's mind blowing to the, the quantity of um, colors and variation that you see. And then the sheep and the cows and the horses. Yeah. Yeah. The, so my job is to like bring all that corporate stuff in mm-hmm. and make that work. Cause it is really important. Mm-hmm. But my other job is to make sure it stays rural. Mm-hmm. And that we've got people on the ground. Farmers feel like they're engaged when they get there. Yeah, and and um, the volunteers feel like they're empowered and mm-hmm. that they're enjoying themselves. So it's a real balance between um, looking after the commercials and making sure that you still empower. Because mm-hmm. it is the largest community event in New Zealand. I'm convinced it is. Mm-hmm. You so know, what sort of numbers do you do you get through? You know, well, visitors. You know, a hundred thousand people, yeah. seven thousand animals. It's, it's, it's any you know plus or minus ten percent depending yep. on the weather, depending on if Prince Charles or Harry turns up. Harry said no this year, by the way. We did see invitation, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the huge volumes of people come through, right. and they come from all over New Zealand and yep. and from Australia and other parts of the world. Yeah, so it's a it's a unique thing, and every dollar it makes, it reinvests back in itself. It's mm-hmm. a, you know we talk about social enterprise, which is mm-hmm. a sort of modern word, mm-hmm. but an AMP show effectively has been doing that since the beginning mm-hmm. of time. And it mixes business with volunteers, with community work. Mm. Um, well, that- that's interesting that you raised that because I was going to go there because that's an area I do a lot in, in social enterprises. So many of the people I interview are social entrepreneurs who've started businesses that you know, combine profit and purpose. And as you were talking, it, it, it was, I was thinking that, that this is more than just sponsorship and this is more than just charity. This yeah. is actually business, but with the, um, the purpose of you know, connecting rural and town communities and and providing an event that um, you, brings people together. Yeah, and a lot of the sponsorships are linked to enabling things to happen. Mm-hmm. So Heartland Bank um, sponsored the Young Auctioneers competition and right. they helped me, in fact, they helped me set it up. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the the young man, and it is men because we never, we never had a female enter. Mm-hmm. They're welcome to enter, but <laughs> they've never have. And so the young man that wins the Young Auctioneers competition... Uh, we fly him to Sydney. He goes to the Royal Show over there, Sydney Royal Show. He he goes to the um, Australian Young Auctioneers competition. He gets involved in that competition. He mm-hmm. he auctions off stuff for charity at their big black tie dinner. It's an amazing experience for a you know twenty year old stockman yeah. who wants to learn that stuff. And yeah, and that so that's so so that money comes in and then it goes out mm-hmm. and it does that right throughout the show all the time. Yeah. Um, um, and like, but the A and P associations actually have an act of parliament. So there's the 1908, 1908, 1908 Act of Parliament A and P Agricultural Associations, and right. so they have. That's how they exist as an entity. But now, of course, they also sit within the Charities Commission. Mm-hmm. That's really fascinating. I mean, it, the the whole event is huge <laughs> when you talk about a hundred thousand people. Yeah, yeah. And if we look at um, across it, you've got your wood chopping and endure across, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of our outliers because they don't have animals. But uh, the, the Enduro Cross is an extraordinary event that the Christchurch Motorcycle Club came to me four years ago and said, can we run an event at your show? 
and my ethos on the show is that nobody owns anything. And I said that to them. I said, look, nobody owns anything here. If you come, you've got to take responsibility for this. You've got to run it. Mm. And they were, absolutely, we can do that. Right. Can you help us financially set it up? And, and I went through the process with how much that was going to cost. And in the end, for $7,000, which is about the contribution of the AMP Association, they come in and use that money to you know, run diggers, build tracks, mm. get some prize money together. Um, and a 16 or 17-year-old kid designs the track on his computer. Him and his mates come and build it with diggers. You know, Dad turns up, yells at them for digging in the wrong place. <laughs> it's amazing. And then the, that whole event pops up. And now, within, th- what, three years, three events, it's probably the largest short course enduro cross competition in New Zealand. We've got a whole lot of people coming from Australia. We've got world champions coming. Mm. Um, created out of nothing, owned by no one, purely for the purpose of a whole lot of people that love doing it turning up and racing. Yeah. Nobody makes any money out of it. Right. Absolutely nobody is. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then people are walking along and they're seeing a huge variety, aren't they? Aren't they? There's yeah, they the are. show jumping and then there's the yeah. motorbikes and other things as well. Yeah. yeah. And the sponsorship for that um, is coming from Mike Pirro. And I'll be honest with you, Mike Pirro is doing it because he loves motorbikes. Yeah, sure. <laughs> he's, a love, he's a motorsport guy and um, yeah. it's a passion of his and he can see all the community involved. And I mean, part of it, I think, for him is just doing that. Mm. He can, you know, so it's good. Yeah, that's great. So the future, um, you know, five or ten years from now, what's the show going to look like? Do you think um, the show will look like it does now? It'll mm-hmm. have this. The, obviously, the objective is to have the same humans, volunteers, mm-hmm. animals. Com, com, but we'll just want to evolve that innovation side of it. Mm-hmm. Have more seminars, more um, opportunities for people to learn. Mm-hmm. We want to build up the um, farmyard next year. You know, one of the issues, places that I really want to work on is food. So we've got a really good food offering at the show, um, but there's no end of quality that you can go to. I mean, you can keep getting better with food shows and mm. evolving it. So we really want to look at that. Um, and we want to stay rural and mm. stay community focused. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm looking forward to coming along this year. <laughs> great. Well, we're looking <laughs> forward bring, to having you. bring my kids. Yeah. Um, can I go a different direction, which is somebody that you mentioned before, which is John Hammond. Yes. Um and I just wonder if you could um, describe, I guess, how you met him and um, what your memories are of him. Um, I, I would say about four years ago, I, I hired a, a woman called Nicola Henderson, who was a marketing manager for me. And um, Nicola was an amazing uh, person to work with. And Nicola chose to move agencies from the, for the New Zealand AMP show, so the Canterbury AMP show, as it was called, to um, Beck and Call, which John owned. Mm-hmm. And so... Through that process, I started meeting with John and looking at the work they were doing. Um, and I, I mean, I, I went home one day and um, said to my wife, who, who, I, who has been an extremely important part of my story, because every time I've wanted to go do something crazy, she's gone with me on that journey and has supported right. me. <laughs> um, I said, look, I, I really want to buy this business. And she, um, my wife said to me, um, does he want to sell it to you? And I said, I don't know. I haven't asked him. And so I... I explained the theory and um, I got the support I needed. And so I went in to see John and um, I went and had a coffee with him and I just said to him, John, can I buy your business? And um, he he kind of looked at me and said, um, I don't, he was a bit taken aback. And then he said, well, I'll have to ask my wife, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's kind of John as um, part of John, who he was as a human, is he, he would never, he couldn't tell you anything but the truth. Mm. That was, I think, hardwired into him. Yeah, definitely. And um, we, you know, we came up with, we went through the process of figuring out what the business was worth. 
and we didn't involve accountants and we didn't involve any lawyers. Mm. Um, and we looked at each other in the eye and came up with a number mm. and shook hands. And um, I mean, we had a contract and all the rest of it as you, as you do, but mm. it really was based on trust. Mm. And I bought that business because I felt that he had a, a culture that I wanted that was similar to mine, mm-hmm. my ethos. And those, that they were people working in that business that um, wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, they they didn't want to, they weren't materialistic as humans, mm-hmm. but they were interesting, creative humans. Mm-hmm. And that was the main thing. And uh, I wanted John to stay in the business um, for a while. Um, but of course, the timing was, um, I mean, terrible and great in the sense that he mm-hmm. got to sell his business before he found out that he had um, cancer. Mm-hmm. And so from a, you know, that really awful practical perspective, he got to set, him, set himself up and set his wife up before he, mm-hmm. before he passed. Um, but at the same time, it was really awful because mm-hmm. he was a man that uh, had given so much throughout his life. And I actually don't think he ever went to work to make money. I just, I, I honestly believe he went to work because he wanted to mm-hmm. and he wanted to enjoy himself and he wanted to create. Yeah. Um, and he then had an opportunity to create something new in his life, that post-65 enjoyment and he didn't get to do it mm. and um you know I, you know i think he possibly got cheated a bit mm. and and that's that's the way that that works i mean I, a similar thing happened to another good friend of mine's father and her mother said to me once i said to her mother how do you feel about all this and she said you know what jeff i'm just a little bit pissed off <laughs> and then, and i thought you know what fair enough mm. he got taken too young and and, mm. and um but john chose to live and he lived to the end so yeah we can all be inspired by that. Yeah, definitely. If people are wondering who we're talking about, I actually interviewed him in December last year. Yes. And um, that was about three months after he'd had the, the cancer diagnosis. Yep. And, and he kind of knew at that point that it, that it was not operable and that he knew what was coming. And so I got him in, in this room actually, right where you're sitting, yes. and I talked to him for about an hour about his life up till that point and, and how he was coping with the news that this was not a, a curable cancer. Um, yeah. So that's still probably one of my favorite interviews that I've done on the podcast because it's it's so raw and it's so, you know, yeah. real and, and such a reminder for those of us here, you know, what are we doing with our lives? What, yeah, how do we use our time? Because Absolutely. Because you don't know. You don't know. And, you know, we talked earlier in this about, you know, I might ring up a CEO of a big company or go into a really important meeting. Mm. Uh, nothing was more difficult than walking into a staff meeting at Beck and Cole and telling them um, what John was facing. Right. You know, it still wells me up. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know John as, know John as long as so many others have. Mm. So mm. Um, it's a, just a, yeah. But I, I'm all about that. You, there's something in front of you. Go and Go and grab it. As long as you're not upsetting others on the way, go and have a crack at it. Yeah. And don't be afraid of risk because without risk, there's no reward. Mm. Mm. Well, that's that's come through clearly through our conversation. So thank you. Thank you for your time. I mean, part of the podcast, the reason I called it Seeds is that I hope the interviews and the conversations will be like seeds for people who are listening, that maybe they will have an opportunity. And, you know, having listened to other people, they'll be like, oh, maybe I will try it. Maybe I will do it. And that that seed will will grow. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, Jeff, it's been a pleasure to have you on and to hear about the New Zealand Agricultural Show and, and all the, that it involves. But also, I really loved how deep we went in terms of events and, you know, that attitude of reaching out to people, understanding what they need, and then um, that process of bringing them on a journey. Um, yeah, it's been really fascinating. So thank you very much for joining me today. 
No problems. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Jeff. I certainly found it fascinating to hear about the inside or behind-the-scenes view of the New Zealand show, but also to learn about marketing and just that approach that Jeff has taken to the different challenges that he's faced in his life. I think there's a lot of wisdom there that we can each learn from. If you enjoyed this show, then consider checking out some of the dozens and dozens of other interviews that I've done with people from Christchurch and beyond. Until next time. (music) 